Thank you for listening to the North Place Podcast. We hope that after listening to this message, you will feel inspired, uplifted, and closer to Christ. To watch the video of this message, visit our website, northplacechurch.com slash watch. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive every episode on your phone as soon as we publish them. Today, as you give, I want to have a conversation with you that I really believe is going to help us learn more about the world we live in, be more informed about what God's Word teaches, and have a greater understanding of God's grace than we would have been had we not been in this service today. But for all of this to happen, you're going to have to hang with me, all right? This is a what I would say a very cerebral message. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on and hang with me from the beginning to the end and take a journey through a passage of the scripture that is going to challenge us. It also has the capacity to change us. So if you check out on me early because it's too cerebral, you're going to miss it. But if you stay engaged with me to the end of this thing, I can just about promise you that you will understand the heart of God deeper than you ever have. You will see the love of Christ in a way you've never seen it. And the message of the gospel is going to become more clear to you than it ever has if you can just hang with me to the end. There's a lot of times when I preach it engages the spirit man. A lot of times when I preach it engages your emotion. A lot of times when I preach it engages your intellect. Every time I come into the services, I try to preach in a way that engages all of that. And I'm going to tell you today leans towards the cerebral, the intellectual, but I want you to understand if you can get it up here and it really grabs your heart, it is going to awaken something in your spirit and impart some faith to you today. And it all comes from a passage on the scripture that is going to challenge us and has the capacity to change us. So, all right, let's stick with me and let's take this journey together. Let's read from the book of Acts, chapter number 8. There's an incredible story here. Normally, I, I just take certain excerpts and then give you the gist for time's sake. Today, I'm going to read the whole thing, and I want you to stay engaged with me. Acts 8, verse 26 said this, Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandiki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. And it's a passage from Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? 
Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they were traveling along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. And they came out of the water And suddenly the Spirit of the Lord took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his own way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. In the book of Acts, you're seeing the church in its infancy, the church as God intended it to be before it was choked out by bureaucracy. You see the real character of Christianity when the church is full of the Spirit's power. Now this story amazes me. This particular story, the more I study it, the more it amazes me. And as the Bible often does, it does again in this story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It surprises us and challenges us. The Bible will always surprise you and the Bible will always challenge you. No matter who you are or what culture you come from, or what social class you're a part of, no matter what prejudices you bring to your study of the Bible, or no matter what nice categorized boxes or presuppositional lenses that you come to the Bible with, the Bible will smash all of them. And this passage is one of those category-busting, prejudice-shattering passages. It teaches us some really incredible things that are going to challenge our way of thinking and our way of believing. And I want us to look at three of them. We have, we're going to be rushed, and I'm going to be going fast to get through the three of these. Number one, this text will tell us about the inclusivity of Christianity. Secondly, it will tell us about the exclusivity of Christianity. And finally, it's going to show us how Christianity can actually be both of those things. Because some of you that know inclusivity and exclusivity are saying, well, Pastor, that's not even possible. You're either inclusive or you're exclusive, but it's impossible to be both. But Christianity is both. It is both radically inclusive and radically exclusive at the same time. And let's begin looking at that first one, the inclusivity of Christianity. In order to see this, you have to get acquainted with the main figure of this story. We're told here that he is an Ethiopian eunuch. And on the one hand, that means he's a black African. On the other hand, it means he is a eunuch. He has been castrated And that was a common practice for males who were not a part of the royal family, but had been given opportunities to serve in the royal court. You remember, we talked about this in our study of Daniel last month, that it was common that in the kings of that era and that day, that if they had young men serving in their court, in order to have those young men competing with the king for the king's harem, the price that you had to pay to get into the king's court was castration. And in this particular case, this man was given a very high-ranking administrative leadership position in the government of the queen. And for her protection, the price that had to be paid to get this job, the prestige, the power, the position was castration. This man was a eunuch. And before we go any further today, you got to notice two things. First of all, you got to notice just how different the two people in this story are from each other. Philip is a middle class Jewish man, the other man is racially different, he was black. He was from the outermost parts of the known civilized world. And to a Roman citizen 
to a Jewish man and any other Roman citizen, somebody that was outside the Roman Empire, especially that far outside, would have been considered a barbarian. So, so not only is he a geographically distant man, a relationally different man, he's also sexually altered. So you have this racially different, sexually altered barbarian. He is as different from Philip as humanly possible. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but it's prayed regularly that Jews, especially from that era, Jewish men, there are certain blessings that they would pray. They would recite these prayers that they had memorized. And there was a prayer prayed, some still pray it today, but it was prayed by every devout Jewish man in that era. And this is one of the lines from that memorized prayer. Oh Lord, I thank you. You didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's a part of the prayer. A devout Jewish man would have prayed that in that era every day because Jewish men were told you don't want to participate with people who are different with you religiously because it defiles you. And this eunuch is about as defiling of a person as possible for Philip to engage. Now, the second thing you need to notice in this passage is how direct God's intervention had to be in order for this conversation to happen. Absolutely direct and supernatural for this connection to be made. Look in verse 26. It says, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the angel literally directed Philip supernaturally to that location. And then it says in verse 29, when he sees the Ethiopian, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran to catch up to the chariot and the, and the spirit said, stay near it. You know why the spirit had to say, go up to that chariot and stay near it? Because the chariot is moving. So he had to run to catch up to it. But he's not asked up into the chariot until verse 31 when the eunuch asked him to come sit with him. So this is how the majority of this conversation happened. Philip running along beside him saying, hey, I see you're reading the Bible. Do you need any help understanding what you're reading? Go up to that chariot and stay near it. This is not the sort of conversation that would have normally happened. A Jewish man doesn't hang out with an Ethiopian eunuch. But we're told by the time we get to the end of verse 39 that as soon as the Ethiopian is baptized, the Spirit took Philip. Now, we don't exactly know what that looked like or exactly how the Spirit did it. But when the word, you look in the original language, the word took literally means the Spirit seized Philip and took him away. So from these two men actually having a meaningful conversation in that culture to the way the Spirit removes Philip, everything that happens in this story is a supernatural divine intervention. But there are two things that you've got to get in your heart before we start piecing this thing apart, pulling it apart and piecing it back together. First of all, the Spirit of God strongly desires racial barriers between people to be surmounted. It's one of the most obvious themes throughout the book of Acts. Over and over and over again, the Spirit has to force 
the Christian to break barriers, to get out of their comfort zones, to deal with and embrace people of different races, different cultures, and different geographic locations because the Spirit has to do it because it's not natural for us to do so. Left to ourselves, we stay among our own in our tribe. But when the Spirit begins to transform us with the love of Christ and compel us by the power of God, we are compelled to love and serve and embrace people that are very different than we are. And over and over and over again, the Spirit does this. The Bible talks about the Spirit being grieved. And if we don't love what Christ loves and we don't pursue what Christ pursues, it grieves Him. And it means that it grieves God when people, especially His people, Christian people of one race, show disdain or contempt or simply avoid or ignore people of other races and cultures. It quenches the Spirit. It grieves the Spirit. I want you to listen to the voice of the Spirit to Philip in this passage. Here's what the Spirit's saying to Philip. Philip, run up to that racially different, sexually altered man that you would normally never have anything to do with and stay close. That's the language of the Spirit. The trajectory of the Spirit. You see it all through the Scripture. You see it clearly in the book of Acts. And that's still the trajectory of the Spirit of God today. It's still what the Spirit desires of us. The Spirit desires that racial barriers be surmounted. Here's the second thing you have to take in. It too is a theme in the entirety of the book of Acts. Christianity does not belong to one culture more than another. Now we've Americanized it. And when we send missionaries, we often, without really realizing what we're doing, we try to westernize and Americanize people before we try to Christianize people. Because we think they need to come to Christ, but they need to look like Americans. They need to sing our songs and wear our clothes and do everything we do. We put legalism on it because we think we have the market on what Christianity looks like. But you need to understand Christianity does not belong to one culture or another. You see that theme play out over and over and over again in the book of Acts. When you go, If you read earlier from where we're reading in Acts 8, if you read a little earlier, a Samaritan comes to Christ. Now that is profound because in that day, Samaritans were hated at every angle. When other nations came into the Jewish area and tried to eradicate Jewish blood from the earth, they didn't just do it by war. One of the ways they did it was strategic intermarriage. So they were trying to dilute Jewish blood. Well, instead of doing that, they just basically created the Samaritans. They had half Jewish blood in them and they had other Gentile blood in them. And because they were mixed, the Jews hated them because they had Gentile blood. The Gentiles hated them because they had Jewish blood. And they were these isolated group of people that nobody loved and everybody hated. And yet you see in the book of Acts, the grace of God, the church pursuing, loving, engaging, bringing the gospel to the Samaritan. And here in Acts 8, you have this very racially alienated and geographically far man coming to Christ. So the Samaritan was geographically close, but racially alienated. The Ethiopian is racially alienated and geographically far, very, very different culture. You read on past uh, Acts 8, and you wind up seeing a religious Jew give his life to Christ. He's a Pharisee. So he's blinded by his religion, and his religion has pushed his heart very far from God. But you see the love of God even pursuing those blinded by their religion in the Jewish culture to save them. You keep reading, you wind up finding a Roman who gives his heart to God, changed by the power of the gospel. Over and over again in the book of Acts, you see that no one culture that, that owns Christianity, the Christianity does not belong to one culture over 
over another. Jesus said in the very beginning, this message, the gospel, is for every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And do you know, do you, just think about it. Do you realize how that puts the Bible, the message of the gospel, in direct conflict with the way the culture ordinarily relates to religion? If you go to school, some secular university, and you sit down in a religion class or philosophy class, this is what they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you that religion is just an extension of the culture. That religion is a function of the culture. That religion wasn't a, it's not a God thing or is none, but God, the culture is what actually created religion. It's a, an invention of culture. Why? Well, because every culture needs solidarity. Every culture needs to cohere. Every culture needs some cohesiveness. So religion is culture's man-made glue that holds that culture together. And one of the ways that that happens is that the cultures start spinning out these stories, these metaphysical stories, spiritual stories about how the world was created and Noah's and Ark's and all those kinds of things. And those things wind up becoming a religion. So every culture develops its own religion in order to keep its people together. So these university professors and religious philosophers will say to you, every culture has its own religion. Proof, look at the globe. If you just study the globe and look at the globe, it will prove what we're saying. Europeans and North Americans have perpetuated Christianity. South Asian cultures have developed and perpetuated Hinduism. Far Eastern cultures have developed Buddhism, Confucianism, Shintoism, and the Middle East. And some South Asian cultures and North Africa have developed and perpetuated Islam. So every culture has basically developed a religion that holds that culture together. That's all religion is. Except you have to listen to what Lamin Sane says. He is an African professor at Yale who is also a Christ follower. He wrote a little book some time ago. It's an incredible book called Whose Religion Is It Anyway? Okay? Uh, and that, the answer is really hinted to in the question. Whose religion is it anyway? Whose religion is Christianity? In the book, he points out all major religions, every one of them, every major religion except Christianity, if you look at their population centers, the population center of those that hold to that religion are still roughly near where that original, where the religion started. So the cultures out of which the religion developed, the still the vast majority of people that hold to that religion live near the population center of where it started. And of course, that plays into the theory of those religious professors, those philosophy professors that say religion is just a creation of a culture. For example, 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, or South Asia. So that leaves only 4% scattered around throughout the rest of the world. 96% of Muslims live around where it all started. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. And of course, all these statistics support the idea of all the folks that say religion is a man-made creation. It is the product of a culture. But when you get to Christianity... It is totally and absolutely different. It is the only worldwide and truly culturally diverse religion. Listen to this. 25% of Christians reside in Central, South, Central and South America and the Caribbean. 22% are in Africa. 15% of all Christians are in Asia, and that number is escalating rapidly. Only 12% of all the Christians in the world actually reside somewhere in North America, and there's something like 26% are in Europe. There's no other religion in the world that looks like that. 
In fact, Richard Balkin is a scholar at St. Andrews in Scotland, and he says this, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Absolutely, it says something about it. Why is Christianity the most inclusive, cultural, diverse religion of all in the world? Why? Key in on this, okay? Korea went from 0% Christian to about 50% Christian in about 100 years. From 0 to 50 in 100 years. That's incredible when you study the history of the world. China, which is much larger than Korea, the same thing is happening in China right now over the last 100-year period. That's the reason why I said Asia is rapidly becoming Christianized. Even though the governments are trying to shut it down, it is happening against their will. Africa went from 9% Christian to 50% Christian in 100 years. No other religion has ever moved into a brand new continent and been introduced to a brand new culture and spread virally like Christianity has. It's never happened before with any other belief system. Sane, our African professor friend at Yale, who is a Christ follower, gives us an example from the African side. Think think about this. Pretend you're African for a moment. He says, think about this. Africans have always believed that the world was a supernatural place, okay? They have always believed the world is filled with spirits. There are good spirits and there are evil spirits. That is the heart of what it means to be African. But there are problems because Africans live with the challenges of how to face those evil spirits. Those evil spirits have power. They can seduce you. They can come in and dominate you. So how is an African supposed to deal and face that reality for them. But, but on the other hand, say that an African gets an opportunity to get an education in another continent. Say they go uh, to Europe and they study in Oxford or they go to Cambridge or maybe they come to the U.S. and they get educated at Harvard or Yale or Princeton. What are those professors going to tell that African student? The first thing they're going to say to them is, you know, we're very inclusive and multicultural here. And we're very happy for you to eat your African food and to wear your African dress. But you need to know there are no such thing as evil spirits. There are no such thing as demons. There are no such thing as angels or any of that stuff because everything has to have a scientific explanation. We really love your culture. We're just going to rip the heart out of it. What we're actually going to say to you is that in order, in order to become educated and enlightened, that you're going to have to become a late, modern, secular, individualistic Westerner. And if you don't, you're not really educated and you're not really enlightened. That's not inclusive. That's exploitative. That's manipulative. That's crushing. It rips the heart out of what it means to be an African. But notice the flip side of that. When Christianity comes to Africa, it goes something like this. Christianity challenges, yet it accepts the Africanness of the African people. It says, on one hand, you're right. There is a supernatural world. There are a lot of spirits, good spirits and evil spirits. They're out there. But there is one who has overcome every evil spirit. His name is Jesus Christ. And through him, you can overcome them too. Do you see what happens in the message of Christianity? It affirms their Africanness, but renews it at the same time. Lamin Sane was talking about why Christianity spreads so rapidly in Africa. Here's what he said. People, referring to African people, sensed 
in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred nor their clamor for an invincible savior so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies and after the after that the stars didn't seem little anymore christianity helped africans become renewed africans not remade europeans in other words Christianity is far more inclusive than the secular culture, which is always talking about being inclusive. Christianity is more inclusive than the people that preach about inclusivity. It does not belong to one culture. It doesn't belong to this culture or that culture. It's not an extension of culture. It's not a function of culture. It's not a product of culture. It comes down from above, and it stands over all of culture. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to recreate Christianity in the soil of every culture. Christianity is therefore the most inclusive of all religions. It's even more inclusive than secularism when it comes to cultural differences. That's point one. <laughs> so, I promise point two and three are quick. Okay, I, I really do. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why point two is quick. If I mention the word inclusive to American suburbanites, they just start getting all warm and fuzzy. Inclusive. 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 And the more educated you are and the younger you are, the more your mantra is, we are inclusive. We are inclusive. We are inclusive. So to hear today that Christianity is inclusive and actually see some empirical evidence that Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world in embracing ethnic and cultural differences, that has to have a nice ring to you and give you the warm fuzzies. Okay, but... But if you want to understand why Christianity is fundamentally more culturally inclusive than secularism or any other religion, you have to understand how it's also exclusive, the exclusivity of Christianity. The reason this is a short point is because I don't have to argue to convince you that Christianity makes some really exclusive claims. They're right there in the Bible, very plain. And they are in this passage as well in Acts 8. In verse 34, the eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah and he asks Philip, what does this passage mean? Please tell me what this means. And Philip, Philip didn't respond to the question in a good postmodern way and say, well, you know, sir, it just really means whatever you want it to mean. Just, you just kind of read it and, and you determine for yourself what it means. And when I read it, I'll determine for myself what it means. And you read it, you determine for yourself what it means because you have to decide what's right and wrong for you. You have to decide what the text means to you. I can't tell you what it means. That just sounds really enlightened, doesn't it? But that's the mantra of our culture. But Philip doesn't do that because the scripture has one meaning, one intention. It isn't meant to be interpreted differently by every person who reads it. God had an intention, a message to get across to everybody, and it was the same message to everybody. And it's our job to approach the scripture and discern what is God trying to say to all of us. And that's what the Ethiopian is doing in this passage. That's what he's trying to figure out. So Philip says, all right, sir, here's the truth, okay? You want to know? It's Jesus. Jesus is who Isaiah is talking about. The only way what Isaiah is saying is going to make sense to you, the only way to interpret this prophetic passage is to see it in the light of Jesus. Jesus makes all of the Bible make sense. So Philip tells him the good news of Jesus, explains to him the good news of the gospel, tells him about God's grace, and after he explains it, the Ethiopian understands it and asks the question, Shouldn't I be baptized? 
Now, we know what baptism means. At least we think we do. It's a, it's a public declaration of conversion. But I think other cultures understand baptism more than we do. It's the mark. It's the break with the old and the beginning with the new. Matter of fact, if you come to Christ and you're in a Hindu culture or a Muslim culture and you come to Christ, you can say you came to Christ and you can still be a part of your family. You're not going to be disowned. You're not going to be kicked out. You're not going to be persecuted. But the minute you get baptized in the water, that's when it all happens. You get kicked out of your family. The persecution starts because then the rest of the world going down in that baptism tank, going, being baptized in water is the mark where I'm changing my belief system. I'm changing my old way of life. It's all new. I, I, I used to believe this. Now, I believe this. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In other words, baptism means I'm stopped living this way. I'm going to start living this way. I have connected to a new and different kingdom. So the Ethiopian is converted. He's baptized. He's not being told, sir, you just need to find God in whatever way is most meaningful to you. I'm going to push you for a moment. This is going to challenge some of the way some of us think. I've already showed you that Christianity is the most culturally inclusive religion out there, but it's also the most exclusive religion out there. It's more inclusive than any other religion, and it's more exclusive than any other religion. And you say, how is that possible? Here's how. Every other religion in the world has a prophet, a sage, a wise teacher. Every one of them comes along and says, this is the path to God. Every one of them is pointing to their particular way up to the top of the mountain. This is how you get to God. We, we, you know this common idea in our culture that every religion is a different pathway to the top of the same mountain. We hear people say it all the time. All religions lead to God. Just be faithful to who you are. If you're a Hindu, be a faithful Hindu. If you're a Muslim, be a faithful Muslim. If you're a Christian, be a faithful Christian. And if you believe and you are, do well to what you are, you'll ultimately get to the top. We're all headed to the same God. You can almost buy into that if it's true that every single religion says this is a way up to the top. The Buddhist says the way up to the top is the eightfold path. The Hindu says the way up to the top is the five pillars. And sure, they have different routes to get to the top, but you know they're all going to the top. Different top paths to the top of the same mountain, right? Well, that works except for Christianity. Because Jesus did not come along on the scene and say, I am here to show you how to get to God. Jesus Christ came on the scene and said, I am God. And I've come to find you because you would never be able to get to the top of the mountain on your own merits or in your own effort. I am the God that your heart and your soul is seeking. So if you have one religion that is unlike all other religions, when the founder is going to make this claim that he is the God that your soul is seeking, then that religion is either a better religion than all the rest, or it is a worse religion than all the rest because the founder would be a liar. It has to be better or it has to be worse. But based on the claims that Jesus makes, Christianity cannot be just one more religion. It can't. It's not possible. Which means Christianity is the most worldwide and it's the most culturally diverse religion. So it's the most inclusive culturally, yet it's the most exclusive in its claims. How does that work? Well, let me leave you with this. The reasoning and grounding for how it can be both. 
It all comes down to understanding the story. And you know how to understand a story? You understand any story by asking the story the right question, and the story will answer the question for you. And in this story, the question is this. Why is a black African reading the Isaiah scroll and studying it so intently? He's a thousand miles from Jerusalem. How did he even know about it? Why is he reading this? We can't answer that without learning more about him. He has gone now from his, he's left his kingdom, traveled to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Why would he do that? Well, he's a eunuch. He's reached the top because it says in the scripture that he was the head of the treasury of the queen, which means he is the most powerful financial man in his country. He was at the top. He has power. He has success. He has authority. He has prestige. But he got there by making a huge sacrifice. And you have to see the sacrifice this man made in light of his culture. Ancient cultures were not near as individualistic as we are today. Matter of fact, they weren't at all. Today, you get your self-worth from your own personal achievements. But self-worth back then was not from your own personal standing. It was the standing of your family. You only had honor if your family had honor. You only had pride if your family had pride. Your family standing was your standing. It didn't matter what you did personally. Your family standing was your standing. And if you had a good name uh, and you had honor, the only way that name and that honor could be passed on, that legacy could be left, was through children. So your name, your legacy, your honor was in your sons and daughters. So... Here's a man who made the ultimate sacrifice to get power. He had given up the very idea of a family in a completely family-dominated culture. He had to be terribly lonely. He made it to the top, but it cost him greatly. So here's my question. Why would a man take a thousand-mile journey to leave his culture, a culture that had its own religion? He left his position, which, by the way, would have jeopardized his position because when you left on a thousand-mile journey in that day, it could have taken up to a year for that journey to complete. And the probability of somebody coming along and taking your position at the government seat was a high probability. And a thousand-miles journey wasn't just long in his day. It was incredibly dangerous. So why would he do that? There had to be not just loneliness but an enormous emptiness in him, an emptiness that the religions of his culture never satisfied, an emptiness that all of his power never satisfied, an empty that his success could not fulfill, why else would this man that lived a thousand miles away hear some faint rumblings about a God who meets with people in Jerusalem and come here saying maybe there is something. His loneliness, his desperation, his emptiness drove him a thousand miles just on the hope that he might find something that would answer the ache of his heart. And this is what's, this is what's so sad. When he finally got to the temple, after traveling all that way and facing all that danger, making all that sacrifice, when he finally got to the temple in Jerusalem, they wouldn't let him in. They would have turned him away. You see, the temple and all of its worship was regulated by the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law is hard for a, it's a puzzle for us as modern readers. We don't, we don't understand it. We can't comprehend it. But it basically had all of these rules about who could get into the presence of God in the temple and who could not. Matter of fact, it didn't matter what your race was. If you had touched a dead body, you were considered defiled, unclean. You could not go in. The only way you could go in was to set apart for a period of time, go through a purification process, and then you could go in. Matter of fact, it's so detailed that it says that if you had mold in your house, you can't go in. 
I mean, it's ridiculously detailed, and it just so burdensome. I mean, what's the point? All of these rules were there to get across a spiritual idea that people often miss. And here's the idea. God is holy, and we are sinful, and sinful people cannot just lackadaisically walk into the presence of a holy God. You've got to be cleansed. Something needs to be done about your sin. So all the rules and regulations of the Mosaic law served as object lessons to try to get that point across. But there were some rules in the Mosaic law that permanently excluded some people. Some people could never go in. And one of those rules was a eunuch. A castrated person could never go into the temple and worship God. So he went through all of this trouble to be turned away, to be excluded, to be left outside. Can you imagine his disappointment? So why in the face of all this, the scripture says he was on his way back home. Why in the face of all of this disappointment on his way back home is he so intently scouring the book of Isaiah? Based on what we know from what he quotes to Philip, we know that he was reading in the chapters of the 40s and the 50s in Isaiah the prophet. And those chapters are known as the servant songs. They're about the suffering servant. We know to be Jesus. He didn't. So in chapter 56, this is what he would have read. Verse 3, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Can you imagine his reaction when he reads this? Let no eunuch say I'm only a dry tree. And he reads two eunuchs who keep my covenant. I will give him a name better than sons and daughters. He would have been saying, wait a minute. You know, there is, how else are you going to pass on your name except through sons and daughters? And what is this everlasting name that will never be cut off? He's being told in his own cultural terms that there is a salvation that goes beyond and is more fulfilling than power or success or even a family name. As he reads, he suddenly keeps seeing this servant that keeps popping up throughout all these passages in Isaiah. God calls him my servant. He's the suffering servant. And the eunuch comes to the passage about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and reads this. He read this to Peter or to Philip. He was like sheep to the slaughter as a lamb before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth, and who can speak of his descendants? Do you see what God is doing? Who can speak of his descendants? I mean, he was, he was zoned in on who can speak of his descendants. He was fixated on that because for the first time in his life, he is learning about a God he can identify with. Here's somebody who voluntarily became a lamb and was slain and voluntarily chose to be cut off from his descendants. In fact, in verse 8, it says this, By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. And in that very moment, he's mesmerized by what the servant Isaiah is saying about the servant. And he wonders out loud, 
Who is this? And Philip catches up to the chariot and said, Sir, do you need any help understanding what you're reading? And he turns around and immediately says, Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Do you know who he's talking about? I do. Please come up here. Tell, explain this to me. What's Isaiah talking about? Yes, sir. He is talking about someone else, and that someone else is a someone with a capital S. He is a very, very, very unique someone else. The someone else above all else's. It's Jesus Christ, born in a manger, died on a cross. Jesus became the lamb who was slain. And he became a leper to the lepers and a eunuch to the eunuch, a father to the fatherless, a widow to a widow. He became what you need him to be. He meets you where you are. I know, sir, because I know how this works. I know you came a long way and they didn't let you in, did they? Yeah, they left me outside. You know what you're reading here, sir? That was, that was religion. That's law. Jesus fulfilled all of that, and he's come to do something different and new. And you don't have to be excluded because he was. You see, my African friend, all the Mosaic law was doing was pointing to a spiritual truth, and the spiritual truth is this. We're all eunuchs. We've all been excluded from the presence of God because of our sin. Nobody, nobody, loves God with all their heart, their strength, their mind adequately. Nobody loves their neighbor as themselves adequately. You know what that means? Nobody can go in. We all deserve to be excluded. We are all lost. But Jesus took our exclusion when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced God forsakenness so we could experience the Father's embrace. He took what we deserved. He was exiled so that we could be brought in. We could never cleanse ourselves. We would never be good enough to go in. But Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And sir, that is the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. I started working through this passage of Scripture some time back and really honed into it this last week. And as I read through these things, my heart began to leap with expectancy about what God was going to say to his people. And I don't know if it's doing in you now what it's been doing in me up to this particular moment, this better understanding of my world, this deeper understanding of God's word, this deeper sense of God's love and grace and understanding of the gospel. But I just sensed in my heart while I was praying this week that I really needed to give you an opportunity. It's going to be really different than what you might expect. Okay? And I've done this. Other people do this. I'll keep doing this. A lot of times when we come to a moment like this in a service like this, pastors will often say, look, bow your heads, um, uh, and if you want to give your life to Christ, raise your hand, and then we pray a repeat after me prayer to help you. And, and I'm, not, I'm not belittling that at all. I came to Christ that way, and I can mark the moment where I was, and the pastor prayed. It helped me have a defining moment. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'll tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible did Jesus ever say, bow your heads, close your eyes, raise your hand, and pray after me. He didn't do that anywhere. Okay? We do that to help people, but you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. You know what Jesus said? Follow me. And then when they said, okay, I'm coming, he said, get baptized. Tell everybody what you're doing. Follow me. Be baptized. 
They dropped their nets. They left their businesses. They gave up everything. He said, lose your life, gain it. Take up your cross. You lose this life. You give it up. For you. you give it up. I'm going to empty yourself of you. I'm going to fill it with something even better. I'll give you a better life here and for eternity. So lose it. Follow me. And then get baptized. Tell the world what's going on. The decision that you've made. Make it public. Don't be ashamed of me and I won't be ashamed of you. So I started praying this week. I said, Lord, are, are, do I need to have Josh and the team just have the water hot? I mean, like, are, is that what do you want us to just right, rush into a baptism? And, and I mean, that's what I really wanted to do. And I, I felt checked in my heart. I wanted to seize the moment now because my fear was in this moment as God is dealing with your heart, the word has been opened and laid bare for you that you would respond. And then the fear was if we didn't seize the moment that you would get out of here and, and, it, and it wouldn't make a difference. Okay. But I thought, you know what? If, if that happens, they weren't serious about it anyway. They'll get caught up in this moment, this emotion. Go get baptized in water. It'll never make a difference in their life. Sometimes that's right. It may, spontaneous, that's awesome. But I just sensed in my heart that it wasn't supposed to happen this weekend. Now, I don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, I don't know if it's going to happen tomorrow, Tuesday, next weekend. I'm going to let you decide that. If nobody responds to this, we're not going to baptize anybody. If three or four people respond to this, we're going to work around your schedule and do what's most convenient for you. If a host of people respond to this, we're just going to bring it back into next weekend and have one big baptism celebration. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't control that, but I can be obedient to what he said to me. And he said, get up next to him and stay close. Now, I'm not claiming to be Philip. I wouldn't mind some of that spirit seizing you and putting you down somewhere else. That'd be really convenient. I preached in Oklahoma Friday night, and I had to drive back yesterday morning. It would have been really nice if he'd have seized me in Oklahoma City and set me right back in Saxe. It never happened to me. I'm not Philip, but I'm the Philip type to you today. You're not in a chariot, but I've run up beside you this morning and said, this is what it means. This is who he is. You can be brought in. I don't care who you are, what you've done, what culture, what religious ideology. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just follow Jesus and then be baptized. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a slide. The guys are, the tech team, on the screen. It's a number you can text. I want you to text the word. If this is you, okay, you're you're ready to follow Jesus. You're going you're gonna to let the world know it, too. You're, you're not ashamed. You're gonna, this is a, then I want you, don't, don't use the quotations, just the word included, all right? That's, text the word included to 31996. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. At the end of our services today, I'm going to see who's responded, and I'm going to let your response determine the way I respond. But I'm going to get back to you because I'll have your information, and I'm going to say, this is what we're planning. This is how we're going to serve you and celebrate. Because one of the things that happens when you decide to get baptized in water is I want your family and friends to be a part of this. See it, because that's when a lot of them come to Christ, is your own story of life change. So text that before you leave sometime today. And just be expecting me to get back with you sometime tomorrow or this afternoon. And we're going to lay out a plan for you. What it's going to look like. And we're going to celebrate. Because for some of you, this was, your, this was your moment on the road to Gaza. And you're like, okay, no more playing around. I'm in. I'm following Jesus. I sense in my heart, I just want to give a chance to pray today. And so 
I'm going to pray a blessing over you like I do every service. And we stand. I want the prayer team to come and position themselves to serve you. So would you stand with me all over this place? Let me pray over you before we walk out of here today. And prayer team, would you come and position yourself to serve this body? Let me tell you this. Last night in our service, and we believe the Spirit of God still speaks, that the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation in the church. and They're words of encouragement, comfort, exhortation. But we have an order in which that happens here. So one of our people here to, in the service last night sensed the Lord speaking a word of encouragement to the whole body. So they took that to the elders. The elders pray about it and said, Pastor, we just sense it's the right word for the church. And the word was this. What you pray for, when you pray for God's face to be turned your direction, God's countenance to be turned your he's doing that. There is an open heaven. And if you will surrender to him in this season of an open heaven, he's going to move mountains. He's going to respond supernaturally. And so I just want to, I want to tell you today, I do believe there's an open heaven this morning. And if you need a miracle in your life, we're going to pray with you. If you want to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus, you still want to dialogue with us a little more. We're happy to have that conversation with you, to pray with you, whatever we can do to serve you. But don't get out of this room today without having a chance in an open heaven for that relationship miracle, that physical miracle, that financial miracle. Let us believe for God to show himself strong on your behalf. Father, would you bless them and keep them? And I believe you are. Would you make your face shine down upon them? And I believe you're doing that right now. Would you be gracious to them? Would you turn your countenance their direction today? And you have. And Lord, I ask you to give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. These altars are open today. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.